0: The text taken for the sermon this morning is taken from the gospel. My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. We are just about halfway through Trinity Tide, the longest season of the church. The summer days have stretched out, the gardens are producing their bounties, and fall, it seems, this morning has come upon us. The liturgical cycle also has slowed down with fewer changes in our prayers and in the colors of the vestments It seems this is a good time to rest and enjoy the fruits of our labor and That according to the church fathers is exactly what we should not be doing Just look at the gospel lessons that have been given to us in Trinity the lectionary and the lectionary is Uh, the list of readings that are given and appointed for each Sunday or even uh, for morning prayer and evening prayer the lectionary is a beautiful gift to us and for the most part the epistles and the Gospels that have come down to us were chosen in the fourth century and then were cemented by the church in Rome in the sixth and seventh centuries the church has been hearing the same lessons on each particular Sunday for at least the last 1500 years. So if you don't like my sermon, go see what St. Augustine said on Trinity 10 and you'll find it, it's there. Some of the choices in the lectionary are quite obvious. So for example, when we enter into Advent, the lectionary chooses lessons that are about the coming of the Messiah, his arrival and the spread of the gospel. In Trinity Tide, the lessons chosen Seem at first to be maybe quite random But there is a progressive and purposeful intentionality behind them Take a look open up the book of common prayer and leaf through them and you'll start seeing that the first three Gospels set What it means to enter into the kingdom of God and then from Trinity four onwards They move into what should the children of God look like now that you've entered into the kingdom of God And so, for example, the fourth Sunday urges Christians to be as merciful as our Father is merciful. The fifth Sunday shows the apostolic example of leaving all to follow the true fishermen of souls. But yet, given that introduction, what about the gospel lesson for today? It seems still a little bit out of place. How does the destruction of Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple, have to do with our lives today as children of God but this gospel lesson addresses one of the most important issues of our lives and that is prayer a couple weeks ago I was having a dinner with a new parishioner and he said I've been to mass a lot of times I've gone to church my whole life heard a lot of sermons and yet I rarely hear a sermon on prayer." Well, be careful what you ask for, because you're going to get two now. Uh, You're going to get one this week and next week. So, here we go. Before I talk about the nature of prayer, though, and its role in our lives as Christians, let us pay attention to the gospel and how it brings up the subject of prayer. At the start of Advent this year, I preached on St. Matthew's account of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and his visitation to the temple. And it should be noted that both Matthew and Luke, they connect the triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, that's when he's riding on the donkey into Jerusalem, with his visitation to the temple. They bring these things get together. And this connection, I argued, was notable because it connected Jesus' first visit to the temple to his last. His first visit was when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus as a baby to the temple when the days of purification were completed and they presented him to Simeon Simeon then receives Jesus and he immediately recognizes Who he is and he worships his Messiah? Now contrast that With Jesus's visitation to our gospel reading today the people they do lay down their clothes for him in the streets They praise him as their coming Messiah. But when he arrives at the temple, no one there receives him as Simeon did. Unlike Simeon, the people there are not prepared for the true person of Jesus. When he enters the temple this time, he has to cast out thieves, and prayer, which is communion with God, has ceased. The likes of Simeon, are gone and now the temple has been defiled. I think the most striking aspect of Simeon is that he actually does recognize the Messiah. St. Luke tells us that he was a just and devout man. The Holy Ghost was upon him and he had been waiting for the Messiah his whole life. He had been attentive to the Holy Spirit and waiting. The same can be said of Anna. Who, according to St. Luke, prayed and fasted continuously at the temple. She was devoted to the temple, and when she saw Simeon take Jesus and heard his words, she too rejoiced, praised God for sending the Messiah. These two people were in constant prayer, and therefore they recognized the Son of God. That's not a chance connection. Prayer and recognizing Christ go hand in hand. So when Jesus comes back to the temple at the end of his ministry, he's not received as the Messiah. In fact, he claims that the temple is no longer a house of prayer. It is now a den of thieves. Let's take a step back and review what is the temple and what is Jesus referring to. You all know well. in first Kings it's Solomon who finally builds the temple he does it uh, for his father David who had promised the building and in chapter 8 the temple has been completed all the adornments have been brought in and Solomon brings all of Israel to the temple for the dedication and he prays this lengthy extended prayer it's all of chapter 8 and in this beautiful prayer He explains how God chose to dwell in the temple that Solomon built, just as he had chosen to dwell in the tabernacle that Moses had built. God's presence was there, and therefore Solomon acknowledges the temple to be the place of prayer. The temple was the physical place where God dwelt with his people. In other words, it's the physical location where it's it's the physical location of union between God and his creation. The Israelites went to the temple to worship God and to pray to him because that's where he dwelt. That's where he was. And if you could not go there personally, then you had to pray towards the temple. You faced east. You turned your body. It mattered what direction you were praying towards because you knew where God dwelt on earth. Solomon concludes his prayer with a call to the people. He says, Israel, let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as at this day. Now that the temple is completed, Solomon urges the people to dedicate their whole lives to the Lord so that they will be perfect with the Lord. He is urging them towards union with God. Well, in our gospel today, Jesus is mourning the destruction of Jerusalem. He's mourning and crying over the destruction of the temple. And those tears were not in vain. Because in 70 A.D., caesar titus completely annihilates the holy city our goal though in life which is union with god is still the same so how do we achieve that that now the temple has been destroyed well by the grace of god this is still possible jesus claims before his death that now it is his body his body that is the temple the place where God has unified himself with creation. The temple stones, they were scattered all across Jerusalem, not a single stone upon another. They were torn apart by expert Roman engineers, and to this day, it has not been resurrected. But as Jesus claimed, tear this body down, and he means his body, And I will rebuild it in three days, which he did at his resurrection. Christ's body is the temple, and his body, the church, is the place where God's people can meet their Creator. Paul explains this, the Apostle Paul, to the Corinthian church. He says, Know ye not that your body, and he's talking here to the whole church in Corinth, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? which is in you, and ye have of God, and you are not your own. Then the Apostle Paul, he goes even further. And this is where it gets crazy. For he calls each individual Christian the temple. He says, Know you not that you, and he's using the singular, that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. We are called then, individually and corporately, corporately, to be a temple. And the Christian's life then is essentially a life of union with God. And that life is given to us at our baptism. If you don't understand that, after all of Father Glenn's sermons, <laughs> you better start listening up then. God unites himself to us in our baptism. And this union is deepened by the continual partaking of the sacraments, especially of the body and blood of Christ. The union, our union with God, is actualized, lived out through prayer. By the power of the Holy Spirit which lives in us, we commune with God through prayer on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. That is, if we open ourselves up to prayer. So let me explain a couple of ways to think about prayer to help understand its nature. John Henry Newman described prayer as a language for heavenly conversation. And Newman means here that just as the mannerisms and language of a culture shape the members of that society prayer shapes the soul of the Christian this is a really helpful definition because it allows us to view prayer in terms of fluency prayer should be as it once was the simplest and easiest natural activity but given our wounded nature it has to be learned and learned with great labor just as learning a language requires a lot of work, but then flows easily off the tongue, so too does prayer have to be learned until it becomes a fluent expression. But even then, even as fluent speakers, there are degrees of knowledge of a language, right? There was one time I was traveling in southern Africa, and I randomly met this older woman at a hostel in Zimbabwe she joined us over a simple meal and by the end of the night she was very kind she offered her house to me when i was going to travel through johannesburg and i took her up on the offer i didn't know anyone else and i realized when i arrived to her house that she was clearly from a different society a high society and so for due two days i enjoyed their hospitality dressed in soccer shorts and a t-shirt and it became quick really clear that their language, their habits, from their language and habits, that we came from very different cultures and societies. We both spoke English, and yet their vocabulary, their pronunciation was different, their whole affect, including their manners, their posture, their habits, it was from a different culture than mine. And as a young American, it seemed as if I was in a different world and that I spoke a different language. Luckily, they were kind. There was a degree of fluency that they had within English that I was not familiar with. So how do we learn this heavenly language? How do we learn the language of prayer? Well, let us turn to the classical definition of prayer, and this comes from St. John of Damascus, that prayer is, simply put, the lifting up of our minds to God the lifting up of our minds to God. This is exactly what the priest asked the people at the Sursum corda corda lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. This is much more difficult, though, than it sounds, isn't it? Our minds are usually preoccupied with so many things that it's difficult to lift our minds beyond creation to God himself. And that is Prayer lifting up our minds to God himself. God is the object of our prayers. We have formal prayers, forms, first to give us the right words to say, but the soul does not come to God in prayer just to say its prayers or to make a meditation, not just to think or rest, nor just to ask for things. Our goal in prayer is to find God and to be with him, with God, we may speak, we may be silent, we may make a meditation or a contemplation, we may ask, we may wait. The action of prayer differs with each individual soul and perhaps in the same soul at different times. But its essence is always the same, the lifting up of your mind to God. The more you can lift up your mind toward God to enter into that heavenly conversation the more you will grow in that heavenly language. It does start with learning formal prayers, just as Jesus taught his own disciples. But it should grow into ceaseless prayer, the constant lifting up of our minds to God moment to moment. That sounds nearly impossible, but it's not. It's learning the heavenly language that You were already created to know and that you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit at your baptism to grow in. Next week, we'll go into more details about the different types of prayer. But today I want to end on a warning. Just because you've been baptized does not mean that you are fluent in prayer. You must learn it. You must persevere in it. Jesus wept, over Jerusalem and he wept over the destruction of the temple prayer had ceased in the temple judgment was coming as Jesus puts you are missing your day of visitation and they were missing it you too as a temple of God you have a day of visitation approaching Prayer is our means to prepare for that day of visitation, your death, so that when you meet your Messiah, you will recognize him, you will know who he is, and you will respond with worship. Learning that worship, learning that prayer, it starts right now in the prayer of the mass. Be attentive, be vigilant. This is not just rote practice of prayer, but it's true participation in the heavenly conversation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.